You're listening to episode 40 of the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. Two episodes ago, the NSS's Alistair Lichten spoke to Andrew Seidel, an attorney at the Freedom From Religion Foundation, on how issues of religious nationalism were likely to influence the American presidential elections. Now that the elections have happened, I'm here with a follow-up episode to examine the outcome of the elections, Trump's legacy, Biden's positions on religious freedom, and the influence of the American religious right not just within the US, but around the world. Under President Trump, Christian right organizations in the US saw an increasing influence over politics in areas from women's reproductive rights and LGBT rights to appointments to the judiciary. However, the influence of these organizations has in recent years started to extend outside America's borders. According to a report by the global media organization Open Democracy, secretive evangelical organizations in the US have been pouring millions of dollars into other similarly regressive organizations all around the world. But what exactly do people mean when they talk about the religious or the Christian right? How far do politics and religion overlap in America? And looking further afield, how far are US evangelical organizations responsible for burgeoning nationalist and Christian conservative movements across the globe? To discuss these questions, I'm joined now by Rachel Lazar, President and CEO of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Americans United is a non-profit organization that campaigns to ensure that religion does not dictate public policy and is not used to justify discrimination. Rachel is a lawyer and strategist whose previous roles include Deputy Director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism and Director of the Culture Program at Third Way, a progressive think tank in Washington, D.C. At the NSS's 2019 conference, she gave the keynote speech on religious freedom under Trump. She was also the first external guest to appear on this podcast in its second episode back in January 2019. Rachel Lazar, welcome. Nice to be here again. Nice to be with you again, Emma. So let's make a start with the questions then. On the podcast last month, the National Secular Society's Alistair Lichten spoke to Andrew Seidel about the role that secularism would play in the US election. Now, looking back on it now, um, with hindsight, in your view, how important were issues about the separation of church and state in Americans' voting behavior? I think that it was part of the zeitgeist of what influenced the vote. I'm not sure that it was as specific as a vote for church-state separation on a conscious level, but I think that um, whereas this is something in America that was set up in the late 1700s and that often many people have taken for granted. Now with what happened in Charlottesville, for example, with you know the protests and the Christian nationalists you know, chanting Jews will not replace us and the hate that we saw and then the president saying that there were good people on both sides um, with the tear gassing of peaceful protesters in front of the White House who were you know, anguished over the murder of George Floyd and um, part of the Black Lives Matter movement, white Americans, black and brown Americans all coming together. Uh, The administration tear gassed them so that the president could go hold up a Bible upside down, by the way, in front of St. John's Church um, and, you know, declare, let's keep America safe and nice. Right. So like with a not so hidden dog whistle that I think was was not missed by many that 
what makes America safe and nice are white Christians, basically, and not these protesters out there. And so in that regard, the separation of religion and government really was playing a role in the, in this election. Well, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement has been um, a key of key importance this year. To what extent do religious and ethnic or racial issues intersect in the US in politics? Very, very much, and in hidden ways, and it's intentionally hidden. I mean, certainly all around the world, but throughout American history from the very beginning, government officials were citing the Bible and entangling themselves in religion as a way to advance racist policies. There's a very long history that really goes through to today when you look at vouchers in America, which are you know, really government funding for private schools, but it's over 70%, in some places over 90% for private religious schools. And if you look at the history of vouchers, they are rooted in uh, trying to evade desegregation orders in this country. And they are rooted in trying to fund Christian academies. I mean, it's documented in, in everywhere. Um, but, but that strategy of funding vouchers as a way to avoid desegregation was an intentionally hidden, obtuse sort of strategy where these um, commissions declared that they were going to sound race neutral right, in the way that they were pitching vouchers. And that's stuck through today to the extent that, you know, there's a campaign that the that President Trump and the Christian nationalists have used to, to pitch vouchers as being for civil rights um, instead of really used to take away money from public schools where the vast majority of of all Americans go in the, and, and an even greater proportionate majority of black and brown American children go. Well, let's look then specifically at the religious right, the, the Christian right. Um, of course, there are many different religions represented in the US, but the religious right as a phrase is widely used to describe Christian nationalism. Um, and it's applied to other similar authoritarian religious mo movements around the world. In, in your view, how useful is this phrase religious right? And how would you understand it? You know, it just might not be the winning phrase for the future. I mean, I think it's a very effective phrase when we're describing really a Christian nationalist movement, you know, a movement that is sometimes disguised, I suppose, sometimes with true believers who are advancing what is really a politically conservative agenda in the name of, uh, of religion. And I think when we're talking to, you know, what we would call our base of supporters, probably all around the world, but certainly in America, that it's, it's a sort of easy shortcut for describing what we're talking about. And it really grew out of, you know, the moral majority in the 1970s. And, but if you think about the terminology, it's confusing, right? I mean, firstly, at least in America, religious is a term that's a very positive term for a lot of people. A lot of people have very positive associations with it. Yeah, that's quite different from the UK, incidentally, I would say. <laughs> yes. Okay. So there's a distinction right there. Um, but, you know, the right also writes rights is a positive term for people. Now, what's clever about the phrase, the religious right, is that it conveys this idea that it's the marrying of religious with political, right? It's not just religious. Right is one way to reference, you know, sort of a political group. But the problem is right can also mean a right, 
which is very esteemed in America. And so you combine religious with right. And it's not surprising that last year when Americans United did a 2000 person poll through a very well-respected polling outfit, what we found is that um, the total favorability associated with religious right was 40%. And the total unfavorability was 33%. So more favorable than unfavorable. It sounds nice and, and, and seductive and sort of a nice, nice little sort of alliterative jingle religious right. It sounds like it encompasses so many positive moral qualities, you might say. Yes, it does. But, you know, and yes, the alliterative part is attractive. But what we found in our polling is when you talk about religious extremists, people are pretty united um, in opposition. Now, the, the danger there is you want to be really careful, right? Because of anti-Muslim bigotry and bias, there's often a quick association uh, um, of sort of religious extremists, at least in America, with, with Muslims, which is unfair. Um, and, you know, so you want to be careful when you use the phrase that you're not conveying that. Another phrase that that was that was more effective than not is Christian nationalism. Um, the total favorability was lower than the total unfavorability. Now, the problem with Christian nationalism in our poll is that 44% of Americans said they couldn't rate it. In other words, they weren't sure what it was. So yeah, we have a lot of education to do, but I think that term also sort of nicely sums up who we're talking about. Now, of course, I'm Jewish, right? I'm actually the first Jewish leader of Americans United in our almost 75 year history. And as a Jew, I feel sometimes um, awkward about not making clear that the religious extremist movement that we're fighting often does include, not always, but often does include Orthodox Jews in this country. Now, Orthodox Jews are 10% of American Jews. So they're a, a very slim minority. Um, but nonetheless, you know, they do join, I think, which can be very short-sighted because they're not going to win by empowering uh, a religious government in the end. And I, I wish that there was more of a long-term vision, but um, that is a problem with, with Christian nationalism. But often, you know, what we are talking about is those who hold the power reins, perpetuating their own power. And that, that does tend to be Christians in America. Now, Biden is a Roman Catholic and, and Trump was previously Presbyterian, but seemed to decide he was non-denominational for the purposes of, of the most recent election. To what extent is, is the Christian right um, or Christian nationalist side of American um, politics? Um, is it non-denominational? Is it a particular type of Christian? Um, you know, it certainly in the concentric circle sort of way lines up tightly with a lot of the white evangelical community. Um, there certainly is white Catholic leadership. Not everyone is white in that movement, but it's certainly majority white and tends to advance a white Christian sort of privileged agenda. And that's what we saw even in, in, in this election where I think President Trump really advanced a white nationalist agenda. And Catholics really divided on him and um, went the right way ultimately, but white evangelicals still really stuck by him and his Christian nationalist agenda. So there certainly is a lot of overlap. And finally, on, on domestic politics, uh, what, what legacy do you think um, that the Trump administration will leave, uh, given that it did embrace the Christian right, especially the evangelical right? 
You know, I think a negative one and a positive one. So I'll start with the negative so I can end with the positive. Um, I mean, I think in in the very negative sense, uh, the fact that one third of the Supreme Court were appointed now by by Trump um, and they really do hold true to largely so far, um, not entirely in certain ways, but certainly on the the true religious freedom question are certainly so far turning out to be right in line with a Christian nationalist agenda. Um, that's very um, damaging for some years. There's also a large number of rules and regulations, um, executive orders that that President Trump and his administration have issued that allow religious exemptions that are harmful, often targeted at the LGBTQ community, often targeted at women, religious minorities, non-theists here um, in the realm of everything from healthcare access and birth control access to access to social services, the ability to foster children, um, employment, you know, in this country, about uh, anywhere between a fifth and a fourth. I've seen numbers for both are employed by federal contractors and they've, uh, they're in the process now before he leaves of finalizing a rule out of the Department of Labor that would really broaden the ability of federal contractors to discriminate in hiring and firing based on their religious beliefs and views. And anyone who doesn't meet their religious litmus tests can be fired, including now for at for-profit government contractors and not just nonprofit ones. So in so many walks of life, there's tons to undo. You know, there's tons to undo and it takes time. And we haven't always seen uh, even Democratic administrations sort of line up. I actually just wrote a column um, this month for our magazine. It's just out and it's just online about even though we're really celebrating a lot of uh, what Biden's record promises on uh, religious freedom that, you know, if you listen to his victory speech that he gave, it was pretty loaded with uh, religiosity. And that's fine. And there were certain parts of it that are sincere. He's Catholic. He was citing a hymn that's really important to him and his deceased son. He shared it. That's It's a big moment for him. He's sharing who he is. And a lot of it he universalized. So that's great. But there were elements of it, you know, which didn't, which sort of made clear in particular, I think, to to non-believers that he wasn't talking to non-believers. On the positive side, I think what the damaging, brutal, you know, Trump administration did on this issue was woke a lot of Americans up to the threats to religious freedom and to church-state separation and made clear how connected and fundamental the separation of religion and government is to everything from science, right, like the vaccines and the treatment of coronavirus to LGBTQ equality to reproductive freedom and connecting those dots is really important to galvanizing a movement who doesn't take church state separation for granted. Because what we saw in our poll is that 60% of Americans said that the separation of religion and government is either one of the most important things to them personally or very important. That was great. But only a fifth thought that it was urgent in some Mm. real way. You know, so so Trump just um, made made the urgency of the situation more apparent. Um, even he really did through his negative um, acts. Now, moving to the American influence of um, the Christian right, um, the nationalist Christian evangelical right um, around the world outside the U.S. 
A post on the Open Democracy website on 27th of October this year reported that the Christian or religious right had in recent years spent at least $280 million of dark money in countries around the world, um, from Africa to Europe to Asia to South America. And of that, almost $90 million was spent in Europe. And this money has been used, among other things, to fuel campaigns against women's reproductive rights and LGBT plus movements. Rachel, from your perspective, to what extent um, is the American religious right interfering in other countries' affairs? Oh, very much. Um, there's a great Netflix documentary series called The Family, and it's based on a book that Jeff Charlotte wrote. Jeff Charlotte, by the way, just joined the board of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which is wonderful. But one of the five dedicated episodes of the, the Netflix series shows that there was tremendous intentional influenced by uh, the family, which is really a, a Christian nationalist group that is out to assert white Christian power in a global sense. And, you know, there there were certainly ties that, that have been demonstrated between the family here in America and the Ugandan law that, that would have put LGBTQ people to death, for example. And, and so, you know, there, these ties are being quite intentionally um, sought after and nurtured. And it's pretty, pretty scary and overwhelming. And, and when I watched that Netflix series, it made me even realize that, you know, some of those ties could have even fortified what became some of the Russian interference um, on behalf of Trump in the, in the 2016 election here in America. To take one specific example of the influence of the American religious right around the world. According to the investigation by Open Democracy, the evangelical Billy Graham Evangelistic Association has been funding lawsuits even in Britain and elsewhere in Europe. Over here, claimants backed by the BGEA have been suing local authorities who closed religious venues during the pandemic. The BGA's president, Franklin Graham, has previously described Islam as evil and same-sex marriage as orchestrated by Satan. The issues raised by his organization in these lawsuits, um, they, they use other tactics, but fundamentally the issue is whether the right to religious freedom trumps the local authority's power to close venues as a precaution against COVID. So in other words, it's religious freedom versus public health concerns. This is a tactic which the religious right have already been using in the U.S., in your view, Rachel, how effective is this tactic likely to be of exploiting human rights law in the interests of religious exceptionalism? It shouldn't be. I mean, I think that if the religious extremists and Christian nationalists are going to land on this as a key part of their strategy, that's favorable as compared to some other things that they could be pushing. Um, from this perspective, that if in order to, to win on, on this argument that religious freedom doesn't mean causing harm, that you have a license to cause harm to others. Religious freedom is the right to believe as you wish, change your belief system across the course of your lifetime, as long as you don't harm others. Because as now sad, very sadly deceased uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg over here used to say, your right to swing your fist ends at the tip of the other person's nose. And you know, said in, in sort of a more legalistic way, when the government is asking for you to bear the cost of someone else's religious beliefs, they're giving privilege to that other person's religious beliefs. And in America, the right to religious freedom that's codified in the First Amendment of our Constitution prohibits that. So, you know, 
at the same time, you know, Americans United has filed over 40 friend of the court briefs, over 40 amicus briefs in these cases here. And we've done incredibly well, um, you know, up until this past Wednesday night, in only three of the cases where we had filed briefs had cases ruled in support of these seekers of religious exemptions over public safety orders. And the Supreme Court had ruled twice on our side that religious freedom is not a right to risk lives and that these services have been documented to be super spreaders, period, the end. But unfortunately, on Wednesday night with the new com newly composed court, even with the Chief Justice Roberts, also a conservative, ruling on the side of the, the progressives on the court, we lost for the first time. The court reversed itself. And the court found that in New York, that the Archdiocese of Brooklyn, uh, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Brooklyn, and a bunch of Orthodox Jewish groups were entitled to a preliminary injunction. So it was just a preliminary ruling, but nonetheless, and it was very gratuitous. And, and just to explain to our listeners who may not know, um, this was in relation to their their right to religious assemblies even through COVID, is that right? Correct. And this was, uh, you know, in response to some targeted new regulations by the governor of New York for areas where there were really high incidences being reported of coronavirus. And so there were stricter rules that, by the way, weren't just for houses of worship, but applied, in fact, as Justice Sotomayor pointed out um, in her dissent, that there was actually religious privilege that was being given to these houses of worship because all non-essential businesses in the red zones were barred from conducting in-person operations at all. And all in restaurant dining was prohibited. And frankly, all of the logical comparators like uh, movie theaters, concerts and such where people come together and spend long periods of time together were all flatly barred in all of the zones. It, it is a difficult one though, I guess. Um, I don't know whether this is a question of the difference between the US Constitution and say the Human Rights Act, which applies in the UK and in, in much of Europe. So in the, in the Human Rights Act, we have um, freedom of religion or belief as a right, but it is limited by or potentially subject to concerns which include um, public health. Whereas, is it not the case that in the US Constitution, there's no such limitations on the right to freedom of religion? No, in the sense that the Supreme Court has ruled plenty of times before that the Constitution forbids the misuse of religious freedom to harm others, and that this would be, in public health instances, that's the classic case. So no, I mean, I think the confusion, Emma, is between religious freedom and religious free exercise. And I think what the American Constitution does, which is really clarifying, right, is it says, yeah, there's a right to free exercise, but there's also sort of the importance of not establishing any religion. And the way that the two work together is what protects religious freedom. And what Ruth Bader Ginsburg, our justice, you know, did such a wonderful job, and Justice Sotomayor as well, of explaining is that unbridled free exercise of religion is not a recipe for religious freedom for all. In fact, it stands in the way of religious freedom for all. Do Americans United or other secularist groups in the US um, have any information that you could share with um, the NSS and similar secularist, secularist groups on how best to resist the influence of the um, Christian right? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, always actively working on that, thinking about that. I mean, some of the ways that we think about it are to think about broadening our coalition 
um, and to make sure that we're reaching younger people. So as to broadening our coalition, it's so important to make sure that we're all banding together. There's a wonderful pastor in America called Reverend William Barber. He's an African-American pastor and he's a real civil rights leader and he leads something called the Poor People's Campaign here. And he talks about the importance of having a moral fusion movement, right? What he says is that in America, that we would have never succeeded in our civil rights movement without people leaving their individual silos and coming together. And I think that what keeping religion and government separate and true religious freedom for all um, invites is like this rainbow coalition of religious leaders, secular leaders, uh, reproductive freedom leaders, LGBTQ leaders, religious minority leaders, that's part of the religious leaders, um, uh, black and brown leaders, right? There are so many ties between so many different causes, leaders who care about science and the environment. Uh, you know, everyone can really, but leaders in this country who care about public schools and who don't want to see money being diverted to what we talked about earlier, this voucher agenda. So it's like really exciting to bring everyone together. There's power in all coming together to support the separation of religion and government. And number two, you know, I think not just in America, but all around the world, there has been this co-opting of the term religious freedom, um, this fraud around it, this redefinition to mean religious privilege. It doesn't mean religious freedom. It means religious privilege. You know, we had a group of students come spend their spring break on a class with me from Stanford University. And I focus group them and I asked them what first came to mind when they thought about religious freedom. And the first thing that, that the group said is anti-LGBTQ. Wow. Right? That That's a redefinition, right? That's a sad day. And so I think it's really important that we all be reaching, have programs and systematically be making sure that we're reaching out to the, the new generation of leaders so that they understand and value what true religious freedom is. Absolutely. Now, in your keynote speech to the NSS last year, you mentioned that Americans United were really trying to engage with the younger generation and with Americans from different social, economic and ethnic backgrounds. How much progress has Americans United made since then in developing this nationwide secular movement? I think we're making tremendous strides. Um, it's, it's a lot about having a plan, right? And we do. We have a five-year strategic roadmap and it really guides us, right? It's like it's like telling someone that you're going to run a race and then you really have to run it and it gets you there. It actually makes it happen. Um, and so for us this past year, I'm proud to say that we launched our Youth Organizing Fellowship. It's our first one ever. And it's a new leadership program that we have um, that we're going to run every year that provides emerging leaders, 10 of them, ages 18 to 25 with training and also support sort of to advocate for the separation of religion and government and mobilize support for Americans United in their communities. And they're a tremendous group. They're geographically diverse, racially diverse, religiously diverse, non-theist believers of different, di different religious backgrounds. And they're each charged with engaging at least a thousand young people through the activities that they organize in their communities and on their campuses in this year and creating toolkits for other youth leaders. They have to each host 10 to 20 community or on-campus events, even if it's over Zoom. Um, and, and we're so excited to have launched that program. And just more generally, um, we're going to be announcing our first ever 
Faith Advisory Council at Americans United because one of the contributions that we really can make is bringing together, it's what I was just talking about, right? The importance of weaving together our interests, right? And if there are two groups of people who are most committed to true religious freedom, it's people who deeply value their religious identities and understand how important it is for others to have their own and people who deeply value being able to have a non-religious identity, right? And, and understand that as well. And so we're, we're announcing our first ever uh, faith advisory council made up of a very diverse group of faith leaders to be voices for Americans United and also to refute this idea that to be for a secular government is somehow to be anti-religion. Yeah, they're often perceived that way. I think secularism is often associated with atheism or, or lack of religious belief, but there's no reason why that should necessarily be the case. Now, just you mentioned the idea of uh, the the abuse of the right to religious freedom, not just in the US, but around the world. In general, how strong would you say the parallels are between authoritarian and conservative religious groups in the US and in other countries? Do you think the US religious right has imposed its own views on other countries, for example, in relation to women's rights or to LGBT plus rights? Or would you say in places like Poland or Hungary, there, there are already indigenous movements in favor of these conservative views, which um, the US Christian right has built on? I, I mean, I think that there are ways that the religious right has worked with the American government. They've had unparalleled access, right? President Obama had a faith advisory council that had non-theists, people of all different backgrounds. It had a narrow scope. It was published in the Red Federal Register, so it was open to, you know, to the public and transparent. This advise, faith advisory council that President Trump had was evangelical only. <laughs> And it had a really broad scope. They bragged about everything. And some of the things that they did, you know, and I think, you know, the fact that this president um, issued the global gag rule again that forbids anyone taking U.S. money from abroad, all the family planning clinics from doing their own advocacy and spending their own money separated from U.S. money on even referring for abortion, let alone providing it. That's something that is pandering to this, you know, religious right community. Um, many people would point to some of the ways that President Trump has worked with Israel, moving the embassy and such to, as again, pandering to evangelical Christians and their agenda for salvation. Is, is it pandering rather than sort of deliberately forcing um, what, what is not already there? I mean, is it pandering to, to movements that are already very much there? I think some of it is pandering. I mean, I think like with the global gag rule, some, you know, there's countries where that isn't already there, where now we're imposing these restrictions. But I think that, yes, there is a zeitgeist right now in the, in the world, really, where there's this sort of often these ties between nationalist populism and, and, and the religious right, you know, Poland, Hungary, Russia, Turkey. I mean, I think we, we're seeing that, you know, happen. And, um, you know, I think just as Christian nationalists here are really pushing to maintain white Christian supremacy, um, that support for religious coercion abroad means that Trump and any future leaders like him will have natural populist allies and that and vice versa, right, for that kind of a movement. So I think there is something that that is happening across, you know, too many countries. And we certainly saw this before, right, before World War II and some parallels that were taking place where there is this sort of populism and nationalism that's definitely being infused with the religion of the majority 
um, and and you know a, a relationship there that's that's mutually beneficial, um, and it's pretty scary. So we can see, yes, certain certain conservative forms of religion, whether Christianity or other religions, when when they become very orthodox, they can often go with nationalism. Exactly, and it's something to be aware of, you know. And I think just there are black faith leaders here in America who I've now spoken to who've said things like there isn't even such thing as religious freedom without it being associated with white supremacy. And I just think that there's a lot of mea culpa and a lot of work to do. I I don't believe in giving up on the concept of religious freedom, but much like the American flag has been too co-opted by the, by the right, you know, over time. And I don't think that means we give up on the American flag. I think I just wrote a column on this as well. I think it means we reclaim it, but part of reclaiming it is acknowledging the way that it's not always been inclusive, right? So that we can then make it inclusive and, and, and own it again. Just one final question, Rachel, you mentioned that Obviously, Joe Biden is Catholic and, and Catholicism is important to him. Now, we might ask a question about, you know, how um, far it should, it's appropriate for the president of the U.S. to talk a lot about his religious beliefs in, in his capacity as president. But looking ahead in general, what do you think will be the main challenges for Americans United under Biden's presidency in the next four years? Well, uh, apart from Biden's presidency, but in the next four years, I definitely think the Supreme Court and sort of the courts are something that we're really going to have to be strategic and tactical around. And um, I think that is going to be very challenging. I think it's going to be a time to, again, focus on educating the the newer generation, um, you know, to make sure that we can sort of have a bench, a judiciary bench that's better. But in terms of, you know, challenges with the Biden administration, look, he's, got a great sort of background and his, and frankly, his plank, um, the democratic platform under him has explicit language around not misusing religious freedom to hurt the LGBTQ community. He actually said, uh, in a, uh, quite some time ago, but still, um, in an interview, he, he said, and I quote, this is a nation talking about America founded on the idea of the separation of church and state after 200 years why the hell would you want to go messing with that? But, you know, I think that too often Democrats will trade on religious freedom in order to protect other rights. It's, it's sort of like a give. And I think, you know, they will feel like there is a vulnerability around what we talked about earlier, Emma, you know, coming across as being anti-religion or anti-Christian in a country that's actually remarkably religious, which a lot of scientists and uh, political scientists have attributed to us having the separation of religion and government, by the way. I think it's great that, for example, he's already said, and we're very proud that we've been part of this, that one of his first actions is going to be to repeal the Muslim ban. And that's excellent. But I also think that we're going to have work not just in competing with a bunch of very important priorities and in what needs to be undone and what needs to be done, but in dealing with, you know, some of the vulnerabilities that 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 Democrats sometimes feel around our issue. I think we have work ahead of us. We, I'll just point out that if you go to our website at au.org, we have uh, an agenda that we've posted for the Biden administration, um, 10 steps that he can take to advance religious freedom in this country. And it's got not just 
negative things, you know, sort of like the undoing stuff, but it's got a bunch of positive things as well, proactive things. He should sign an executive order to restore and protect religious freedom for all Americans that makes clear what religious freedom is and what it isn't, right? He should make sure that throughout the administration that its workers are reflecting the diversity of America, which includes non-religious people by the way, and religious people of all different religious backgrounds, that he should support the Do No Harm Act, which would be a law to make clear that our religious freedom law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, does not permit harm to others, that that's not what it's supposed to be about. So I think, you know, that that we, we do have an agenda to guide this administration, and we look forward to meeting with the administration, and, and I'm sure that we will, in many regards, work together. Well, Rachel, that sounds like you've got your work cut out for you over the next few years. <laughs> I think thanks so. Thanks very much for a really interesting interview. It's great to have allies like you, Emma. Thanks for all you guys do as well. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society. All rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.